It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. side of midnight i'm frank morano it seems like anywhere you turn there's a lot of discussion of drugs we need only look at the statistics to see the alarming number of drug overdose deaths that are taking place in this country if you want to discuss uh, politics so much of the conversation around border security includes conversations about how drugs are coming into the United States. If you want to include uh, discussions about foreign policy and geopolitics, so much of the conversation involves where these drugs are being manufactured. It's an economic conversation. It's a public health conversation. It's a political conversation. And uh, if you take a look at the book Dope World, it is a fascinating fascinating story and there are so many aspects of the global drug drug trade that i think many of us don't think about somebody that does think about it is nico vorobayev he thinks about it because he's lived it he is a convicted drug dealer turned freelance journalist and an author uh his latest book is dope world nico uh joins us live from lebanon nico good morning thanks so much for joining me on the radio Hey, Frank. Uh, thanks for having me. I know it's quite late now in the States, uh, so I hope my voice doesn't put your listeners to sleep. <laughs> we're just starting. We're, we're just starting our days, Nico. You're not going to put anybody to sleep. Hey, you've been called the Anthony Bourdain of the drug world. Is that a fair characterization? I mean, I hope I don't end up the same way, but uh, yeah, it's a, it's a privilege to be to be compared to the man himself, the legend, yeah. Uh, so for folks that don't know your story, you do not have a conventional background for a drug dealer. You came from a very standard middle class uh, family. How did you end up entering the drug trade? Uh, take us to how it all began. Um, so basically, yeah, I did have a very middle class background, but it's also a middle-class immigrant background. And at the time we we're living in uh, Britain in the UK and there weren't really a lot of, uh, a lot of other Russians around. I was originally born in Russia. So I never really fit in. Also, like we traveled a lot. Uh, you can, maybe you can pick up a slight uh, American twang to my, to my accent. Cause I learned English in the States. So we kept moving around a lot. I was always a new kid in school. I always never fit in. And that kind of pushed me towards, um, uh, towards other other places where maybe I shouldn't have been sticking my nose in. 
that led me to um, sort of underground uh, rave culture. So every weekend I'd be going out somewhere, like somewhere in the forest or under a bridge or in a warehouse, you know, and they have like these electro illegal electro music parties, which you'd only find at the location on the night. So I'd end up going to them and uh, I started selling ecstasy there. And then it all kind of got a little out of control. So by the time I, uh, I got caught, I was already in university. I was already having like a, like a several people operation. So I already had several like runners working for me. And what country uh, were you living in at the time? Britain. I was living in London. And uh, so you, it uh, it sounds like maybe this was not a strategic, well-thought-out decision to, okay, I'll become a drug dealer. This is the path that I'll take to becoming a drug dealer. It sounds like this was sort of um, a, a a circumstance that you fell into based on what was going on in your life at the time. One thing sort of leads to another. Is that fair? Uh, yeah, I mean – I think that's the the, the the case in 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 most of the time. I mean, like very rarely, you know, someone will wake up one morning and think, "Hey, you know, I'm going to become a criminal." Uh, yeah, it's uh, when when I, when like ninety percent of the time, uh, the way people end up where they are is because of their their circumstance and the position they find themselves in. Not that that makes like one choice for another mm-hmm. okay, but like we have to understand why people make these choices. How much time did you end up doing in prison? So originally I got a two and a half year sentence, which was a little harsher than what I was expecting. I ended up serving around a year of that. I got released a little bit early because I was a good boy in prison. I didn't start any fights. Uh, but for a while I had to wear, you know, like the, the electronic bracelet around my around my leg. So I had to be home from 7 till 7. So basically I was under house arrest for a couple of months after that as well. Do you regret uh, that decision or uh, meaning the decision to become a drug dealer? Or do you view that as just a part of your life journey that gave you some interesting stories to tell and some unique expertise that no one else has? I mean, put it that way. Like when I was in prison, I think the main thing about prison, it's not like the gangs or like, you know, any of the, like that Shawshank Redemption stuff that you might see in the movies. The main thing about prison is it's just really boring and depressing and you're stuck in the room in a cell all day, like with only your thoughts for company and like your thoughts just go around and round like a merry-go-round. And yeah, at the time, you know, it felt like I was going a little bit crazy. So at that moment, like there was a lot of uh, a lot of questioning myself, like how did I how did I screw up so badly? But on the other hand, like looking back at it now, and this is more than ten years later. I mean, if I hadn't done all those dumb things back then, you and me wouldn't be talking right now. I wouldn't be a published author. I probably have like some kind of nine to five job, you know, working in an office, which I'd hate myself for. That would probably push me to be a drug dealer again, if I'm honest. With <laughs> Nico, you. you don't strike me as the nine to five type. I I, I think that uh, somehow you would avoided that. You would have avoided that fate, uh, no matter what. Uh, if people are just tuning in, we're talking with the author of the book Dope World, Nico Vorobayev. He's joining us live uh, from Lebanon. Uh, Nico, there's always a lot of negative connotation. I think this is international, but there's a lot of 
negative connotation to the role of being a drug dealer. They're portrayed as the villain in uh, after-school specials, in news stories. Politicians are always pushing for stiffer prison sentences for drug dealers. In your view, is that negative reputation that drug dealers have, is that deserved? Is that warranted? I mean... To answer that question, we'd have to define, like, what is a drug dealer? So, like, on paper, like, as far as the law is concerned, a drug dealer is only someone who supplies drugs. So that could be someone, that could be, you know, like a college student uh, peddling a bit of hash on the side to buy more Che Guevara posters for his dorm. Sure. That could be, like, um, Lucky Luciano or, like, El Chapo, you know, like one of those big-time, like, crime bosses. Or that could be just like a, like a heroin addict and like they just sell a little bit more heroin to their friends so that they can get some free smack at the end of the day. Uh, all these people are drug dealers and they're all like uh, in very different roles. I wouldn't say that like a drug dealer isn't inherently a bad person or, or uh, like how should I say like a vicious criminal type. But obviously like because of the nature of the business – it does attract um, a lot of those those criminal types. To so put it a different way, like uh, back in Prohibition, the Prohibition era in the states. So Al Capone, he like alcohol was considered an illegal drug, sure. pretty much. So Al Capone, like I would say, Al Capone wasn't a bad guy because he sold some booze. Al Capone was a bad guy because he had people lined up against the wall and Tommy gun. You know what I mean? Sure. No, no, no. That uh, that may that makes sense when you put it that way. In terms of, you know, there's a big debate in this country about um, what the penalties should be for drug dealers who give someone a drug that they then overdose on. In fact, uh, there's a lot of attempts in many different states to charge drug dealers with murder after if they sell someone drugs, be it fentanyl, be it heroin, be it something else that leads to their death. And there's um, more and more jurisdictions adopting laws like this that could cost a drug dealer a 20 year prison sentence. What's your view on that as a matter of public policy? Do you think it's fair to charge a drug dealer with the death of someone who overdoses? I mean, in one sense, it's like a quality control issue. Um, so in one sense, like, I, I do think that, like, like these days, there's a lot of testing kits available. I think that, like, uh, like for example, like, uh, I, even, I even had one uh, quite recently. So, like, they're, like, reagent tests. So, for example, you, you uh, like, a very basic test. You put a little sample of what you have on, like, a strip of paper or next to some other chemicals, and they change color, and you can see what's inside, and you can kind of check what's in like i think that's like a very basic uh very basic test that that anyone can do and it's quite cheap and if drug dealers aren't doing that now i think they should be taken to account uh taken to task for that maybe not for 20 years but that there should be some accountability Mm -hmm. but on the other hand like when you have like these 20 year sentences right and again let's say like uh let's say your friend you and your friend you're getting high together right and then uh, your friend, your friend dies. So you, you're basically because you shared the drugs with him. You basically supplied them with the drugs, right? Like, right, and that's that. and that's what exactly that's exactly the scenario which is resulting in some people, including family members of folks that die of a drug overdose, getting charged and potentially facing some very lengthy prison sentences. So it's a very real ethical debate. 
Yeah, and and the other thing is, so like when let's say like you're not you're not dead yet, but you're dying. So like you could still be saved. Like the the, the, the shoot you up with some naloxone or whatever. Um, let's say that's happening. But if you're facing twenty years potentially as someone who supplied that, and then you're at the scene and then they die. Like that's is that going to make you more or less likely to call the paramedics? So that's like uh, I'm not sure about the the exact stats in this in the states, but in uh, in Europe, Sweden actually has one of the highest overdose uh, rates in Europe, and also Sweden has some of the toughest drug laws in Europe. And I don't think that's a coincidence. Hmm. There's a there's a survey saying. Uh, a lot of like heroin addicts, they're quite reluctant to call an ambulance for their friends who are overdosing because they're afraid that they're going to be arrested themselves. Sure. sure. Uh, no, that uh, that makes sense. And uh, I think that's uh, one of the prime reasons that there's so much debate about this. Hey, from your expertise and from what your research tells you and from what your experience tells you, how are the bulk of the drugs getting imported into the United States? How are they coming into this country? Oh, that's uh, that's an interesting question. So I remember uh, I started looking into that a while ago when uh, back when back when Trump was all like, "Yeah, build that wall, build that wall." Um, I won't get into all the all the politics around the wall, but first of all, the Mexicans build tunnels, so that would have made a large part of that redundant. But I've also read a DEA report that like basically the the majority of of drugs are the United States from the southern border, they're actually disguised among uh, legitimate traffic. Usually like uh, like shipments of, of goods coming in in, in lorries and freights and whatever, uh, just simply because there's so much uh, traffic, I mean like uh, cars, vehicle traffic, crossing the southern border each day, it's impossible to check more than like maximum like 10%. Mm. on any given day and 10% is probably like if it's not a busy day so like let's say like one one 1% is probably like the average so you're checking 1% you're probably gonna make that intelligence focused as well right so you probably like some snitch tipped you off that there's a shipment of such and such coming in hidden in some bananas or whatever um, but just because there's so much coming in that that's the majority of of coke and meth and heroin from the south from Mexico that's coming in through legitimate shipping companies. We're seeing legitimate shipping companies. That is that's wild, and that's not uh, that's not part of the narrative that I think most Americans have uh, a full appreciation of, of these days. Uh, we're seeing in the United States. Over 100,000 Americans die every year, last few years anyway, from opioid overdoses, heroin, uh, fentanyl, other opioids. Uh, from what you can tell, where are most of those opioids being manufactured? Are they being manufactured in the United States? Are they coming from places like China? Are they coming from Mexico? Are they coming from somewhere else? So initially, like a lot of it was coming from from Mexico, from places like Sinaloa in Mexico, where I've been, or the like um, a little bit further down south, like like Veracruz and Michoacan. There's like a lot of poppy fields there, and they make heroin there the old school way. And you know? so they've got like the they've got the poppy field, the flowers, and like every couple of months they harvest the flowers. Uh, they get, they take the white goo, 
the, which is opium out of flowers and they process that into heroin. That's how it was for, for many years until around like the mid 2010s when fentanyl started appearing on the scene. So originally fentanyl was made in China because China has a huge chemical industry, like a legitimate uh, chemical industry. And at the time, uh, fentanyl wasn't illegal to produce in China. So the Chinese chemists, they could make uh, they could make fentanyl completely legally in their factories and have it shipped over to the United States in the mail. So those days are over. The Chinese have cracked down on it. Uh, but what's happening now is uh, factories, the Mexican drug cartels, who used to get their heroin from the farmers, the, the puppy farmers. So now they're getting the ingredients to make fentanyl in the secret labs in Mexico and then shipping that up north. And another side effect, what's happening from that is now the, the, the puppy farmers, they're losing out big time. So it's, uh, it's disrupted a lot of like the sort of like the local, uh, economy squeezing out the, uh, well, it's, it's, it's basically what, what, what capitalism does, you know, like squeeze out the, the little guy, like the small businessmen, the, the big businesses kind of conglomerate together. Well, no, that makes sense. We have seen a number of governments, both state governments in the United States and even internationally, move towards uh, decriminalizing cannabis. Obviously, cannabis is sort of on a different level than ecstasy, a different level than uh, certainly heroin or fentanyl. What do you think this means for the future of drug use and the drug trade, uh, the decriminalization of cannabis? Uh, yeah, we're actually seeing that all over the world. Um, it's uh, we're seeing that in like, for example, uh, Malta legalized it uh, this year. So in Malta now, you can grow and and smoke your own. Uh, so is Thailand. Thailand was famously strict on it, but Thailand's an interesting example because Thailand's also it's gone the other way as well. So like now, Thailand's declared like a renewed war on drugs. Because there was a there was a ex police officer I think and he went on a shooting rampage through a kindergarten killed like 24, 25 kids and there was like a rumor and th- this wasn't even backed up by the by the autopsy earlier but there was a rumor that he was on meth so then the government decided like okay we're going to do like a whole new crackdown on meth so like thing is like with with, with cannabis like if you're talking about the the drug trade specifically cannabis is like a fairly minor part of it and it's probably like the least violent part of it i think like a lot of it is because like a lot of the people who sell weed they also smoke weed mm. whereas if you get into something like coke or meth a lot of the people who sell coke or meth also do coke or meth so you've got very different personalities running this game uh you have to have like a way more specialized uh like criminal outfit because weed you can grow weed anywhere like you can grow weed in Antarctica if you had like the like the right greenhouse. But coke, like you know, you need the logistics. You need to deal with like the 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 death squads and the paramilitaries in South America. It's a lot more vicious criminal circle. So I think that I think legalizing weed, it's like a good thing in terms of like uh, for adults. Like if adults want to smoke weed, you know, like good for them. Like it, it's it like from a from like a freedom personal freedom point of view, I think it's a good thing, but I don't think it's really going to affect the drug business that much. You, you mentioned overall. the difference, uh, the differences 
economically between something like marijuana versus uh, cocaine or or meth. I'm curious from a profit standpoint, if, if you're a drug dealer, what is the most profitable drug to sell? What drug has the biggest profit margin? Uh, well, for me, back when I was doing it, uh, for me, weed actually had the least. So for, for like every, like, uh, let's say $150 I'd invest, I'd get 200 back. So I'd make like $50 profit from every 150 uh, Whereas with ecstasy, I could quadruple my money over the course of one night. Quadruple? So like the, wow. Yeah. So, so the price that I'd, I'd buy it for wholesale, like per gram. I'd sell it for like uh, four times that. I Or I could sell it for four times that. You know, like sometimes I'd be generous or like sometimes I just want to sell it faster so I'd sell it a little cheaper. But uh, I think that that's just, that's, a, that's a very consistent pattern. First, because weed is like such a big market, like the, the markup isn't that high because everyone smokes weed. Sure, sure. Uh, finally, let me uh, ask... Whereas, oh, no, go ahead. Yeah, whereas with, with, the, with synthetics, like... With ecstasy, like ecstasy, you can manuf- they can be manufactured locally in Europe, you know, can, in some laboratory in Holland. It doesn't have to go all the way from from South America, so that saves up on the on the logistics costs quite a, quite a bit. Very quickly, let me end with this: uh, You're Russian, and uh, there's been a lot of attention paid to this Russia-Ukraine conflict, which seems to be complicating a wide variety of uh, international concerns as it relates to the United States and Russia. One of those concerns has to do with Brittany Griner. She's the WNBA superstar who's now serving a nine-year sentence on a drug charge in Russia. The Biden administration says it wants to bring her home. There's been discussions of maybe some sort of a prisoner swap, letting some Russian prisoners go in exchange for Brittany Griner. How do you view the Brittany Griner situation, given your history and your expertise in both the drug trade and your knowledge of what's going on in Russia these days? Uh, so at the beginning, I, I thought like maybe she could just be unlucky because I, I didn't think it was necessarily like a like a like a, she was being kept ha- captive as a as a hostage because you know like a lot of foreigners have fallen into that predicament and Russia has very tough drug laws. Like in theory, like if you have just a small amount for yourself, then that's kind of decriminalized. It's not really a crime; it's more like something you can find for, not really jail time. But in practice, uh, the police always just happen to have to find just the right number of drugs on you to start a serious criminal case. Uh, so I thought that she was very un- unlucky. But when she actually got sentenced in nine years and she didn't even have like a gram's worth of cannabis oil on her. So like, that's definitely like she's definitely been used as a as a political uh, bargaining chip. Mm. I mean, you know, I. I'd question the wisdom of, of taking, because uh, she admitted that, that it was hers. I, so I questioned the wisdom of taking uh, something like that to Russia. So maybe on her part, that wasn't the wisest decision. But like, I don't think that, you know, that making one stupid decision should be worth, you know, spending a decade of your life locked away in another country uh, for. So I definitely, I definitely feel for her. And, um, but also, this is the kind of situation that tens of thousands of, of Russians find themselves in each year. 
So it's kind of shining a light on on that aspect of our justice system as well. Yeah, no, that is for sure. Uh, Nico Vorobayev, uh, people could check out the book Dope World. Nico, I hope we could talk again soon. There's a whole bunch of stuff that I want to uh, go over with you that I didn't have a chance to get to today. Let's uh, let's chat soon. Thanks, Frank. It's uh, it's been a pleasure, and uh, yeah, let's keep in touch. Absolutely. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight.